Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is the second part of Secret Societies, Communism and Coal, Life in the Castle Comer Colliery. In the first installation of this series, we looked at the tough life of the miners in the coal field in the early 19th century and their bitter struggles against the mine owners, the Wandersford family, in the early 1830s. This episode takes us through to the 1840s and without doubt, the darkest chapter in modern Irish history, the Great Famine. This epoch-changing event transformed life not only in the colliery but across Ireland forever. So the entire episode focuses on the years of the Great Famine, 1845 to 1852. The story of Castlecomer during these years is somewhat different to the experience of other parts of Ireland and is very much related to the way people lived in the coal fields. So first, we'll begin with a visit to the area on the eve of the Great Famine, which began in 1845. If we were to travel back and visit the coalfield in the early 1840s, perhaps one of the most immediate things that would strike us would be the population density, something that influenced life in every way imaginable. On the eve of the Great Famine, even in rural parts of the colliery districts outside the town itself, nearly all available land was taken up with houses and cabins of colliers. These were small, with one or two rooms, often built on less than an acre of land. By 1841, the coalfield was the most densely populated rural region in the entire province of Leinster. This was not a recent phenomenon, but had roots decades earlier. You see, since 1815, Ireland had been in the grip of an ever-deepening economic recession. While the root causes are complex and beyond the scope of this show, one important contributing factor was the policy of the British government towards Ireland. Since the Act of Union, which came into force in early 1801, all decisions relating to Ireland were taken in the Parliament of Westminster in England. Unsurprisingly, the government pursued a policy that saw Ireland's industry run down so it would not compete with British industry. Instead, Ireland was reduced to the status of a food producer and a source of cheap labour for the emerging industrial cities in England. 
This led to a severe recession in Ireland and naturally people flocked to Castlecomer hoping to find work in the collieries. The statistics of the community that had emerged by 1841 when a census was taken was mind-boggling. On average, across the Castlecomer region, there were some 250 people living per square mile. To give some perspective, the national average today is around 180. However, these people were not spread evenly across the area. In some rural parts that were close to the coal pits, the population reached 850 people per square mile. One report claimed that Castlecomer contained a population greater than any city or town in Ireland, Dublin and Cork accepted. To make matters worse, little thought or planning had gone into how or where these people lived. Many of those who arrived into the region found themselves living in little more than temporary encampments of poorly built cabins in already cramped coal mining areas. The difficulties this created only increased in the 1830s as the recession increased. As the wider economic depression deepened, the coal mines struggled and pits frequently closed. Increasingly, miners found themselves out of work and often left the coal field looking for work elsewhere, leaving destitute families behind in an increasingly heavily populated, impoverished region. With work scarce, many scarcely had enough land to grow potatoes, the only crop that was nutritious and bountiful enough to survive on. That said, it's important to note the issue wasn't overpopulation, but rather how society was structured and how the population was centred on specific areas. By the late 1830s, it was increasingly predicted that not just Castlecomer, but indeed much of Ireland, was increasingly unstable. Wealth was concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, while the poor were being pushed to the margins of life, being forced to survive on tiny plots of land where they grew potatoes. If anything went wrong, the outcome could be disastrous. In 1845, this happened when the one thing keeping this entire economy afloat, the potato crop, the food source for millions, failed. Starvation loomed over society. In Castlecomer, one man now held the lives of thousands in his hands. This person was possibly one of the worst placed people to take on what were the life and death decisions for thousands, given his own life experience. This was the owner of the coal fields, the somewhat illustriously named Charles Howard Butler Clark Southwell Wandesford. Between 1845 and 1852, the lives of thousands of people were affected by the decisions he took. So before we continue, it's worth taking a look at this man and who he was. Charles Wandesford, born Charles Butler, certainly had lived a life less than ordinary. He was the fourth son of Lady Anne Wandesford and her husband, the Earl of Ormond, John Butler. Born and raised in Kilkenny Castle, a medieval fortress that had recently been renovated into the style of a French chateau, he had never wanted for anything. At the age of 22, he'd been appointed the sheriff and then mayor of Kilkenny, and by his 40th birthday, he was a member of Parliament. However, as a fourth son, he could never aspire to succeed his father as Earl. This privilege fell to his older brother James. Nevertheless, in 1830, on the death of his mother Anne, he was granted her ancestral lands of Kirklington in Yorkshire and, most importantly, the lordship of Castlecomer, where she had been born. However, no sooner had he received these lands than his own brother, the Earl of Ormond, James Butler, 
began court proceedings against him to challenge his right to Castle Comer. Eventually Charles endured and won when the Earl died in 1838. Perhaps it was this dispute that prompted him to distinguish himself from his relatives and he used his mother's name, Wandesford, rather than his father's family name, Butler. As undisputed master of Castlecomer, its coalfields and some 20,000 acres of land, not to mention the tens of thousands of people who lived there, Charles and his family took up residence in Castlecomer House. While it might have lacked the prestige of the 600-year-old Kilkenny Castle where he had grown up, the splendour of Castlecomer House was unimaginable to most of the people who inhabited the land surrounding it. Castlecomer House was a stately home built in 1802 after Charles's mother's ancestral home had been burned in the 1798 rebellion. While local folklore in Castlecomer claims the structure had 365 windows, tax returns reveal there were slightly less and nevertheless impressive 95, not to mention the 26 fireplaces. Surrounding the house was what the local community called the Domain. This was 346 acres of land that were carefully landscaped into gardens, forests and two lakes for hunting and shooting. The vastness of this house and the lands required an army of servants, from stable boys to cooks, all the way to footmen and maids. However, these people, in service to the Wandersfords, even though living at close quarters, inhabited a completely different world in every way imaginable. They entered Castlecomer House through their own gate to the side of the building. Charles and his family used the main entrance with its elaborate wrought iron gates. On the awkward occasion where these two worlds collided, such as an unplanned meeting between one of the Wandersfords and a servant on a stairs or corridor, a strict protocol existed. The servant practised what was called giving way, to turn to the wall and cast their eyes to the floor. In 1845, when the potato crop failed, the fates of thousands were in the hands of this one man, Charles Wandersford, who scarcely understood what it was like to work long shifts in the mines, toil on farms or live on a diet solely of potatoes. What he did was controversial, but deciding whether it was good or bad is not straightforward, as we shall see. But first, I want to take a quick break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. While Charles Wandesford did live worlds away from the reality of those who struggled to survive in his coal fields, he, unlike his ancestors, did take a proactive approach to how the mines and his lands were run. 
We saw in the last episode how, in the 1830s, he had attempted to change the way the mines operated. These attempted changes, however, had failed after vociferous protests and an assassination of a mine manager. While this was an attempt to change the way people in Castlecomer worked, he had simultaneously been trying to change the way they lived. Charles Wandersford did recognise that too many people were living in the coal districts on plots of land that were simply too small to survive on, particularly as the mines became an increasingly unreliable source of income in the 1830s. However, rather than try relocate people to other areas of his estate or redistribute land, Wandersford began a somewhat more controversial policy where he paid for one-way tickets for poor tenants who wanted to emigrate. In 1840, this saw 144 people leave Castlecomer. 362 people left the following year, and by 1844, 1,360 people had left the area. While this was designed to alleviate the increasing impoverishment of the Castlecomer region, something that did threaten Wandersford's overall income, it all proved too little too late. In 1845, the long-predicted implosion of the Irish economy happened, called the Great Famine Today. But before we look at the specifics of Castlecomer and the reactions of the Colliery community and Charles Wandersford, I will summarise the major events of this famine briefly. The Great Famine was triggered by a collapse in the potato crop, which millions across the island depended on for their survival. In 1845, the first signs of blight, a fungus which destroyed the crop, appeared in autumn that year. The famine conditions did not come into full effect until the following year of 1846 when the blight had spread across the country and devastated the entire potato crop. Potatoes increased in value and those dependent on them could not afford other foodstuffs. Millions were soon unable to feed themselves and also unable to pay rents. In the following six or so years, everything that could go wrong went wrong. By 1847, as potatoes had quadrupled in price, the British government, who ruled Ireland directly since 1801, more or less washed their hands of the situation, leaving a desperate people to their fate. Starvation was not the biggest killer, but instead it was disease. Indeed, everything from typhoid to dysentery and even scurvy killed people in droves as they struggled to get enough vitamins. The economy also imploded. The poor, struggling to survive, obviously could no longer pay rent and estates went bankrupt. Even the wider economy was not immune. That said, it should be noted that in one of the most notorious aspects of the famine, large amounts of food continued to be exported to markets where a better price could be found. While many argue back and forth whether this food could have fed all the starving people in Ireland, what is unquestionable is that the British government had the resources to deal with the crisis had they so wished. They chose not to. Free market liberal economic views of the time advocated against intervention. Indeed, some argued that giving aid to the poor was fundamentally wrong and that, at the very least, they should have to work for it. In a country where the poor were weak from starvation and emaciated with disease, this was simply never going to happen. Racism, towards Irish Catholics in particular, also played a major part, leading some to argue that the famine was, in fact, the wrath of God. In this climate, compassion for the starving poor evaporated. As the government refused to act, this left landlords in a fight with their tenants. While many landlords faced ruin, the cost for many tenants was death. Supported by the army and police, landlords evicted 200,000 families between 1849 and 1851. Hundreds of thousands died and even more emigrated, 
Indeed, by 1851, the population of Ireland had dropped by 2 million from a previous census carried out in 1841. While this presents a national picture, the impact of the famine varied massively from place to place. The worst hit regions lay in the west of Ireland, but the Castlecomer Colliery was severely impacted in a way that was very different from the wider County Kilkenny region. First and foremost, the famine devastated the coal mining industry in Castlecomer. While some coal had traditionally been exported, the majority of coal mined in Castlecomer was sold to local farmers within a few dozen miles of the pits. Once the Great Famine took hold, however, most farmers saw their livelihoods collapse and they could no longer afford coal. Soon pits were closing. Already impoverished from the malaise of the 1830s, the region was now pushed over the precipice into an abyss. Indeed, an account from the Reverend John Aylward, the parish priest of Clock, just outside Castlecomer, from 1847, is harrowing. In a letter to the newspaper, the Freeman's Journal, he relayed a picture of life in Clock where he said there was nothing to hear but the cries of widows and orphans. He went on to say that between June the 21st, 1846 and June the 3rd, 1847, 160 people had died in Clock. This was compared to an average of 12 in the years 1844 and 1845. Aylward finished with a dark account of life and clock in that year. I have been this day attending a young lad who is in fever. He is one of four orphans. He is stretched out in a miserable hut, the resting place of those orphans. No fire, no food, no covering on the sick person, but lying on something like straw, now changing into dung from the dampness on the floor. I asked him would he wish to be sent to the sick house, and his answer was that the doctor had sent word that there was no room in it for him. Scenes like this recounted by Aylward were happening not only across the coalfield, but across Ireland. In 1847, one master collier wrote to Charles Wandesford, begging him to open a new mine as his crew of colliers and their families were starving. While the suffering was ongoing, Charles Wandesford was not idle though. However, some of his measures, as we shall see next, were controversial. In the 1840s, the Wandesfords estate, including the coal mines, was, like many others in Ireland, a bit of a mess. Charles Wandesford's mother, Anne, had neglected it to some extent. She had allowed the development of a middleman system to rent land, similar to the way the mines had operated. This effectively saw a class of middlemen, or profiteers, skim off money, which served to push the rent up. So, for example, a clonine outside Castlecomer, Charles Wandesford's mother had sublet 469 acres of land to the Den family. However, the Dens had no interest in farming and only used the land for profit. So they in turn just rented it to another 67 people who in turn then rented it to a further 129 subtenants. Most of these subtenants ended up living in cabins on what was a perch of land. Now that's not much bigger than a basketball court. This system of land ownership was disastrous and during the famine Charles Wandesford began reneging on the agreements that his mother had made with these middlemen. While it was claimed that Wandesford purely did this for the benefit of his poor tenants this doesn't really add up. He had been trying to do this for decades and the famine merely gave him a pretext. The middleman system was highly unprofitable for his family as well much more controversial and a policy that had a much bigger impact on the colliers was that of assisted emigration. As we saw earlier, since about 1840, 
Wandlesford had started a scheme where he paid for tenants, particularly those who were impoverished, to emigrate. This saw him purchase one-way tickets to the USA or Canada. Assisted emigration heavily focused on the districts with high populations, particularly the mining district of Monin Row, which lay just to the northeast of Castlecomer. Indeed, in 1847, known as Black 47 in Irish history, 83 families left that area through assisted emigration. Over the course of the famine, the population of Monin Row dropped from 2,022 people to 947. It's impossible to imagine how this would have changed and disrupted life. Imagine in the space of five years, more than one in two of your neighbours, many of whom are close family, had died or emigrated. This policy of Wandersford's is and was deeply controversial, as it tore communities that had existed for centuries apart. However, through this assisted emigration, Wandersford undoubtedly did save lives. Had he simply evicted tenants, they would have been much more likely to die. Neither was it a policy that was cheap for him. He did spend around £10,000 during the famine to buy tickets to America. However, before you make up your mind about his motives and whether it was a good or a bad policy, there are other factors worth bearing in mind. While Wandersford did pay £10,000, he was benefiting in the long run. Before he agreed to pay for a ticket, he did have one condition. The tenant in question had to give up their lease and all rights they had to land in Castlecomer, and once they left, their houses were pulled down. This was to ensure they could never return. In this process, Wandersford was able to clear land and restructure his estates into much more profitable holdings for his family. It should also be noted that he did issue eviction notices as well. In 1851, several dozen people, including the Reverend John Aylward, the parish priest of Clock mentioned earlier, were evicted. For me, though, I suspect he had other, deeper motives in his emigration policy, which was linked to his experiences of the coal mines in the 1830s. In the last episode, we saw how he had tried to restructure the entire Castlecomer colliery, and this had resulted in a violent upheaval and resistance from the mining community. Indeed, one of his managers, Mr Potts, was assassinated. You can hear the entire story of that struggle in part one of the series. By paying for emigration, Wandersford though not only cleared the land and allowed him to open up bigger holdings that were more profitable, but it also rid him of many of what he would have seen as the troublesome colliers and their families who had caused him so much difficulty. Indeed, through 1848 and 1849, while Wandersford was assisting emigration on the one hand, he had agents busy across Ireland attracting new miners to come to Castlecomer to work in the collieries. This does lend itself toward the idea that he was eager to get rid of some of the existing colliers. We'll never know how conscious this policy was, but intended or not, it definitely resulted in restructuring of the mining districts and seems to have given Wandersford an upper hand over his once militant miners. Indeed, during the famine, the conditions in the mines appear to have been deplorable. In 1850, a miners' representative, Michael Brennan, asked Wandersford to improve the conditions because he said the miners, and I quote, would almost wish the Lord would put an end to them rather than continue working in their current conditions. However, even when they pleaded with Wandersford, there is little evidence they showed the militancy that had characterised life in the colliery in the 1830s. This is not surprising, though. Their resistance and militancy that had troubled Wandersford so much had been based in a very close-knit society in the mining districts where secret societies based around families had flourished. 
the massive emigration and death of the famine unquestionably undermined this. What exactly Charles Wandesford's motives were is very difficult to ascertain, and ultimately you need to decide that yourself, based on what I've presented here, his life previous to the famine, his actions during it, and the effect of those actions. The answer, I would think, is probably not that straightforward. It is possible, for example, that he was motivated both by his own personal interests to restructure his estates, but at the same time had humane concerns about his tenants and didn't want to see hundreds and maybe thousands of people starve to death. Whatever his motives were, by the end of the Great Famine, starvation, disease and emigration had decimated Castlecomer. While the population of some of the mining districts fell by 50%, the overall region saw its population decline from 30,000 to 20,000 people. This had a lasting impact. In the following 20 years after 1851, there was little record of any upheaval or the miners organising for better conditions in the mines. This is hardly surprising, given their secret societies and community organisations had been swept away in the torrent of death and emigration during the famine. It was unquestionable that the famine had changed life in Castlecomer forever. Before I go, there is an interesting postscript to this story. While the Great Famine saw many of the militant miners leave Castlecomer, they did carry their traditions with them to the places where they emigrated. Many settled in a place called Cole Castle in Pennsylvania in the northern United States of America. Soon, they along with other Irish emigrants were organising resistance to the unjust practices of mine bosses there and forming the secret societies that had been common in Castlecomer in the 1830s. These reached a crescendo when the so-called Molly Maguire Secret Society killed several mine bosses. Eventually, the notorious Pinkerton Detective Agency were brought in to destroy these groups and 20 people were executed in 1878 and 1879. Among those executed was Martin Bergen, almost certainly a descendant of Castlecomer emigrants. While Bergen mounted the gallows 4,000 miles away, back in Castlecomer, the mining community were emerging from the trauma of the famine and they were beginning to organise themselves again. In the next episode, we will see the story of the land war in Castlecomer and the emergence of the trade union movement in the collieries. Until then, Slán. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.